0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books and Psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Donna Fishson. Today, I'm very excited to be talking to Bruce Fink about Volume 1 of his latest book, Against Understanding, Commentary, Cases, and Critique in a Lacanian Key. It's uh, by Rutledge, 2013. And in about a month or so, we will meet again uh, to discuss Volume 2, so please look out for that. So I'm going to briefly introduce him, uh, as many... Of you in the audience probably know Bruce Fink is a practicing Lacanian psychoanalyst and analytic supervisor. He trained in France for seven years and is now a member of the École de la cause Freudienne in Paris. Please don't throw tomatoes at my French. Mm. Um, the Institute Lacan created shortly before his death. Uh, Bruce obtained his PhD from the Department of Psychoanalysis at the University of Paris. Uh, eight, Saint Denis. He served as professor of psychology from 1993 to 2013 at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh, and is currently an affiliated member of the Pittsburgh Psychoanalytic Center. Bruce is uh, the author of six other books on Lacan, translated in many, many different languages. Uh, some of my favorites, uh, The Lacanian Subject Between Language and Jouissance by Princeton in 1995, it was published, A Clinical Introduction to Lacanian Psychoanalysis Theory and Technique, Harvard University Press, ninety-seven. Lacan to the letter, reading a cre closely. Uh, Minnesota Press, two thousand four, and Fundamentals of Psychoanalytic Technique: A Lacanian Approach for Practitioners, which was published by Norton in two thousand seven. Um, he's translated also several works uh, of Lacan, um, Lacan's works, including uh, a cre, the first complete edition in English from two thousand six which, uh, for which he received the 2007 nonfiction translation prize from the French American Foundation and the Florence Gould Foundation. Uh, seminar 20, encore, on feminine sexuality, the limits of love and knowledge. Um, among others, on the name of the father, names of the father, the triumph of religion, and Seminar 8, Transference, is forthcoming, or maybe it's already... I think it's still forthcoming from... Poly. It's still forthcoming, right? Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, and he's also the co-editor of three collections on Lacan's work, published by SUNY Press, Reading Seminar 11, uh, Reading Seminars 1 and 2, and Reading Seminar 20. So, uh, in sum, Bruce Fink is the authority on Lacan in the English-speaking world, and, though we've never spoken before, he's my subject supposed to know. So, uh, Bruce, welcome to the show.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Anna. It's nice to be here.
0: Um, so, when when people ask uh, me how I became interested in, in Lacan, I tell them about uh, one night in December 2003. Um, I was sick with a cold and I was, I was actually in the midst of dissertation write-up, so I was so therefore wretched. And I was lying in bed staring resentfully at a pile of books I was storing for a friend in my tiny New York apartment. And on top of this pile was your clinical intro to Lacanian psychoanalysis. And I started reading it, and I couldn't put it down. And then I immediately read uh, Lacanian subject, and then I read Lacan to the letter, and then a few books, a few books by Žižek, and then I began reading Lacan himself, so uh, translated by you and and other people. So that's my story. Okay, that's it. I'm not going to talk about myself. Here, so okay, that's, a that's great my story. Um, so what's what's yours, uh, I, Bruce? I I'm curious. What what inspired? What first inspired you to study Lacan and? Uh, why did you get um why do you think you became so hooked?
1: Uh, that's uh yeah that's well there a couple of separate questions there but um I think I first encountered Lacan's work um uh as he was being lambasted by Deleuze and Guattari <laughs> in uh, anti oedipus And since they, you know, uh, took him to task so thoroughly, I had to see who they were taking to task. And, um, uh, but of course it was impenetrable uh, to read him um, you know directly at that time in, uh, in English and uh, and I didn't speak French at all and uh, I was lucky enough to be living in Ithaca New York and um uh, a guy named Richard Klein was giving a course on Lacan and Derrida and Foucault and um so uh, Richard gave me my first introduction to Lacan and I I got hooked on the idea of the subject of the unconscious and I think I also got hooked on the fact that uh, he seemed to be talking about things that um, intrigued me, but I didn't know what he was saying. And I think that kept me going for a very long time. I think I got to a stage, I guess, at that point, after having been through a lot of really difficult philosophy and political philosophy, um, where um, the harder it was, the more I liked it for some masochistic reason. (laughs) But, um, uh, of course, the fact that he was talking about love and he was talking about subjectivity and the unconscious, all of those were... um, very important to me and that certainly got me started and has kept me going for a very long time Uh, when you know i still find a lot of things he says very perplexing and um uh, but it always spurs me on to reflect even if i'm not sure i agree with him or i think maybe he's frankly wrong um i always think I always find it so much more rewarding to read his work than many other authors. So, um, hmm. yeah. You know, I, I my, yeah, sorry. That's my story.
0: <laughs> no, I, I, so I have to, I was very quick there. I, I wanted to confess that, okay, so in the, in your book, there are several interviews where you answer this question, right? Uh-huh. And you say at one point, um, and you said it, you said it in the course of your answering it here, but um, that you were drawn to Lacan's notion of the subject. Mm -hmm. And um, this really uh, resonated with me uh, as well, his notion of the subject. And so I guess I I was hoping you'd elaborate a little bit on that. Um. I mean, what was it about his notion of the subject that, you know...
1: Yeah, I think that would be hard to say right now, uh, initially, what grabbed me. But, you know, I was uh, um, uh, coming out of um, uh, studies of philosophy and uh, even religion, Eastern religions, where the question of, you know, what is the self, what is identity, Um and, you know, some Freud as well, the ego, superego and it. Well, you know, what the hell is this thing that we uh, refer to as ourselves? And um, uh, like many people in the 70s, I was... Uh, Certainly, hearing about Zen and uh, hmm. uh, and in, in Hindu, I studied some Hinduism when I was at Cornell and uh, and Buddhism and the question of well, w- you know, what exactly is this thing that we call ourselves um, uh, seemed uh, quite mysterious and opaque and. Freud seemed to have an answer that had something to do with the unconscious. And then Lacan had this mysterious phrase, the subject of the unconscious. Um, So I think, and yet it was obvious that there wasn't a kind of permanence to it. But uh, it didn't mean, it seemed to me at least uh, in Lacan's work, that um, that meant there was nothing to it whatsoever. And it wasn't somehow absolutely crucial. Um, so it wasn't a sort of notion of perspectivism or a notion of mm. um, identity in terms of, you know, who I, like, uh, think of myself as like, and so on and so forth. It seemed to be something more profound to that. And um, so I think mm. that was what initially intrigued me. Um that's a historical answer. I
0: guess. <laughs> no, I, I'm I'm very sympathetic to that, and you know, I was actually I was curious about uh, your role as um, I mean, you had me hooked on page one um, in your intro to Lacanian psychoanalysis, but uh, but I wanted to know what you think about the resistance. Well, maybe you don't think there's a resistance um, to Lacan in the Anglo-American context, but. Um, Oh, I certainly do. Okay, yeah. okay. Yeah. So you agree. Yeah. Um so yeah, I'd like you to speak to that, I guess. And also conversely maybe uh do you think what do you think is the reason for his popularity in um in say our Argentina to the point where, you know, there his concepts are part of common parlance and pop culture?
1: Um oh, as as I understand it in Argentina, um is also incredibly uh, well known there and um, psychoanalysis in general seems to be very well known there Uh, and I would say that at some level um, psychoanalysis um, has had a harder time in the U.S. than in many parts of Latin America and so it's not just lacan i think lacan yeah lacan is rejected um as impenetrable by many um american and uh english speaking uh clinicians in general more so perhaps than a lot of other perhaps equally opaque uh, psychoanalysts like klein and uh, beyond and and so on but um i think there's um uh, um uh, first of all there is the uh, historical, ever-present rivalry between England and France such that um, anything that's French uh, should be rejected by somebody, you know, any self-respecting English-speaking person. Yeah, that's perhaps truer, of course, in um, in England than it is in the U.S. There's um, obviously um, an adoration of things French by a certain segment of the American population and that's more the intelligentsia and the, the the academic community and i think that the clinicians are very much not part of that uh, for the most part and some of them are but um, many of them consider themselves and this is probably due to the, the way psychoanalysis developed in the united states uh, through medical channels primarily uh, many um, you know american analysts view themselves more as like doctors like physicians as you know clinicians practitioners above all and not they're professionals and not necessarily um uh um well-versed in the humanities and uh they don't necessarily think of themselves as intellectuals per se
0: mm-hmm.
1: um so there certainly is resistance and I think um you know there's a historical piece as well which is that um uh uh Lacan's a very difficult writer. The first translations were you know very tough to get through and um Lacan didn't make it any easier when he came and spoke in the states <laughs> um and um uh, so um and, I, and even as a person, I don't think he did much to try to make himself likable uh, to, <laughs> uh, to uh, in America. Anyway, I don't know exactly in England uh, if he uh, made many attempts there. But um, so um, uh, likableness can go a long way, I think, when even when your work is very difficult. And,
0: uh, mm-hmm, it's interesting. Well, we'll come back to the issue, I think, of translation. Um, but I wanted to, I, I wanted to start to talk about the book, uh, more directly mm-hmm. and, uh, the title and the eponymous, uh, first chapter, of course, against understanding. So, so that's provocative. And, um, uh, so why is understanding, um, or, or meaning making also and meaning making not the point of treatment in your view?
1: Um, because I think that what happens when uh, the emphasis is placed on understanding and meaning-making, then change gets lost in the sauce, so to speak, that the, that the priority to make something fundamentally new happen, to um, to really radically transform a person um, gets uh, um, it's uh, left by the wayside in a sense where it um, that uh, the focus on understanding becomes a distraction in a way that the um, uh, the clinician becomes so concerned with. Uh, you know, have I understood my patient correctly, and can I convey this understanding uh, transparently somehow or without any loss of of uh, material of um, of comprehension to the patient um, that there's a loss in of the notion of well, what is this understanding supposed to do? What, what does understanding uh, for a patient, what does it do for the patient? And um, uh, first of all, a little context there. You know, I spent 20 years teaching in a department that emphasized um, <laughs> understanding. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: and so I worked uh, with students who were being taught that it was all about meaning and all about understanding and the question that I would always raise to them in my co- classes, well, you know, what good has it done you to supposedly understand your patient's problem and to explain it to them and what good, is, what good has it done your patient to supposedly know that um, a particular problem arose exactly at this moment in time and mm, perhaps for this particular reason was that curative. And, um, you know, my sense is that most of the time, no, it wasn't. And of course, I also, the other context to it is that, um, uh, perhaps like many other analysts as well. Um, I always talk about myself as a mental health provider of last resort that, you know, Lacan, Lacanian psychoanalysis is such a weird, um, a weird thing to do that usually people have done three or four different other kinds of therapy or analysis before they come to me, and they often have a whole story about what they've understood about themselves and about their lives. Mm-hmm. And, you know, their complaint is often, you know, well, I know all of that, you know, perfectly well, but, um, you know, I'm still doing the same things uh, that I was always doing. So um, that, again, seems to, we could say, well, they had the wrong understanding of things, or we could just say that understanding somehow is not really the key to making something new happen for someone.
0: Mm-hmm. So so, what is the key? Is it is it, no, is it producing a certain type of knowledge?
1: Um, no, again... A, a, a <laughs> distinction
0: between knowledge and understanding?
1: Um, I mean, we could uh, at a certain level, because we could talk about unconscious knowledge, and Lacan certainly talks about that at times, but the notion there is that it's a knowledge that's contained in the unconscious... Uh, which has not been formulated and therefore in conventional terms, in any case, not understood. Um, Uh. So we can imagine a knowledge uh, that exists in someone without there being any understanding of it. Um, And uh, what I would suggest is that we're trying to produce a change in the unconscious. And even in the knowledge, let's say somehow written in the unconscious, uh, we're trying to change that uh, as opposed to someone's conscious understanding of things. And and the hope then is that uh, a change in the unconscious leads to a change in... Uh, one's capacity for juissance that what what you enjoy, the ways you're able to enjoy, and what you enjoy changes in that process.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, mm. So, uh,
1: a bit abstract, but... Um,
0: no, not at all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, so, can, actually, can you relate um, your uh, point about... Understanding not really causing change to your I was thinking about your two thousand and seven book on technique, and there you make this uh, case against empathy, a uh-huh. uh, pretty strong one, and then uh, and also projective identification as a sort of central concept uh-huh. of uh, treatment and technique uh-huh. so all these things i I feel like are related they're of a piece. I was wondering if i mean you don't have to this is asking a lot perhaps, right. but uh-huh. but maybe we can. Maybe you can um, talk a little bit more about understanding as it relates to other forms of sort of tools, if you will, that one has, uh, the analyst has, like empathy and um, different concepts like projective. I'm not sure projective identification totally fits this, but I feel like it's related for you, or you can relate them perhaps.
1: Yeah, uh, I think empathy is the easiest one to relate because... um, I think conventionally at least empathy is often thought of as um a way of saying, you know, I understand what you're going through um and often the subclause there is because I've been through something similar myself. Um, And that's, you know, right, that's the sort of presumption that um, the therapist seems to um, make when uh, empathizing with someone, oh, that must have been difficult for you, that kind of statement is usually made when the therapist believes that if he or she had been through the same experience as the patient, he or she would have uh, found it painful, Mm-hmm. And so it's it's supposedly putting ourselves in somebody else's shoes, but actually what it is is um, a projection of, you know, I would have felt this way, therefore you must be feeling this way. Um, and um, and some people would say, well, of course it goes further than that, that we can imagine even if we haven't had such an experience, we can imagine why it would be painful for some other person. Um uh but uh i th- i find it in most cases when therapists say things like that um it's often not true that it was exactly painful for the patient and the patient often says you know what the hell do you know about it you know you've never been through this mm-hmm. and um uh, uh and uh, that's when you get those kind of embarrassing questions when the patient says to you well have you ever been and then they describe a situation which probably only three people on earth have ever been in before and you have to say well no not exactly well then how could you know what I'm talking about Um, so um, again there is a kind of uh, imaginary component to both of those I think of understanding and empathy because there's a presumption on the therapist part that let's say she understands or what the other person is going through um, based on her own experience, whereas the patient often experiences that as not at all true, and that it's a fantasy on the pac- on the therapist's part, um, that the therapist really knows what the patient is going through. Mm-hmm. Um, and the patient often finds evidence for that in um, the kind of comments that the therapist makes about that experience of feeling that the therapist is really barking up the wrong tree. No, you don't get it at all. You know, you, you really don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think those are related and perhaps um i think uh, projective identification would uh, yeah i think we uh, would be a, a, a bit more complicated to link up there but certainly projection itself is um is uh, very closely linked to the notion of empathy and and a presumption that we do understand what somebody else is going through. Mm-hmm. Um, and I often hear that from therapists that I supervise. Of course, they say, "Well, I could tell by the expression on his <laughs> face that you know x y and z." Well, oh. uh, I don't know. From what you've told me, I'm not so sure that that's exactly what was <laughs> going on,
0: right? Um, I see what you right. mean. Yeah. Um, actually, I mean, what you seem to be arguing against, too, here is, uh, a kind of, um, presumption on the part of the analyst that the, well, that the analyst really knows, right? The mm-hmm. analyst is supposed to occupy the position of a subject supposed to know, perhaps, but, but certainly not believe that or, or act as if, um, he or she really knows. So, right. I, I I guess though you know, th- I feel like in it, there's always a tension in technique papers. Though I mean, even as you try to argue for uh, oracularity, is that a word, or a polyvalence, mm-hmm. um, et cetera, I I just think it's it's uh, difficult to write a technique paper or write up a case or, or I don't know a clinical vignette without without displaying mastery. It yeah. seems that a certain mastery or coherence. Um, is sort of inherent in that genre, or, or or maybe narrative form generally, you know, so I, I guess my my question is, yeah. like, how do you guard against that, or, or can you?
1: Right. Uh, well, I tried to address that. I don't know if you've had a chance to look at the preface to the second volume, uh, not <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, uh, I talk about that a lot because um, uh, you know, I, I taught a class called uh, Case Formulation for many years, and um, uh well, first of all, I always encourage the students to talk about the cases where they felt they screwed up the most, where they were absolutely useless as therapists, or they think they made huge mistakes. Because obviously in you know, when people do give public presentations, what they try to do most of the time is to show that they're competent, if not brilliant, therapists. And um, so I, I indicate in that preface that, you know, it is in um, writing up clinical papers that uh, analysts are most inclined to lie through their teeth. And, you know, I'm not saying I'm completely excluded from that. I think that all of us, when we, tr- when we make a clinical presentation, there is a strong temptation Mm. To make it sound like we know what we're doing, and that we know where we're headed, and that you know we've sort of got things more or less under control, maybe you know we we made a mistake here or there, but that generally speaking you know <laughs> we we're we're sort of doing the right thing and um so what i um I point out in the preface and what I always talked about in the class was um the number of in of completely invented facts, invented scenarios, and even invented analyses, lock, stock, and barrel, that um, we find in the analytic literature, not the least of which is um, Heinz Kohut's Two Analyses of Mr. K., I think it's called, Mm -hmm. uh, where he invented one of uh, the analyses in the book, Lock, Stock, and Barrel. And so, um, I think you're quite right that, uh, first of all, um, uh, many people misunderstand Lacan's notion of the subject supposed to know uh, Mm. to mean that the analyst really does know. Right, right. That's a a problem right Right. off the bat. And I think many analysts... um, especially in a kind of um, context of professionalization of psychoanalysis, believe that they, they do know. And uh, when the longer they're at it, they think, well, yeah, um, you know, I do know more and more. And I, and especially people who talk about intuition a lot and they think that, you know, the longer they've been practicing, they have this fabulous intuition now Um <clears throat> Uh, again, I think you know there is this um, uh, bad tendency to think, uh, you know, I really do know what's going on for this person, and the more, the longer I practice, the the more quickly I catch on, and so on and so forth. And I think that really fundamentally goes against everything Freud and Lacan uh, argued, which is that you know. Every case is unique, and uh, we—it's um, a struggle for us to fathom what's going on in any case. And the—the the moment that we begin to think that there are somehow rules and regularities, um, uh, we're really, uh, you know, pulling the wool over our own eyes.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and so, yeah, I, you know, I attempt a little bit. In, uh, I, there are about nine different cases that I've included in volumes one and two, and I try to at least, um, you know, especially uh, probably in the rewriting of them for the uh, for this collection. To indicate just how unsure of uh, what's going on I am at different points in time, and you know, depending on the venue in which I gave the paper, uh, I probably succeeded or didn't succeed so well at that. Um, but my hope is at least that. Um, I don't give anyone the impression that I think I really do know what exactly was going on all the time, and um, that I thought I was doing the right thing, and that I knew more about it than the patient did, and so on and so forth.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um And um, hmm.
0: you know, I I I, th- I just had, it occurs to me that so Lacan didn't write up his uh, his cases, right? He never did. He use any of his own clinical material
1: he did and uh, but did. not not a lot Uh the, the precious little yeah there are a, a couple of vignettes uh, in his work um uh, there are various reasons for that, some of them perhaps not as good as others. Um, uh, Lacan was, uh, of course, he did write up um, a lot of his work with a patient in his doctoral thesis, but he wasn't an analyst yet. So he was mm-hmm. a psychiatrist at the time. So you have a dissertation that was based on, you know, probably about 200 pages of material related to a single patient. Um, But later in his work, a lot of his teaching was to a whole group of people uh, who were his patients or his supervisees. And it was, I think, in many cases very tricky for him to ever mention a patient without other people in the audience recognizing who he was talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the, 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 the problem of confidentiality was obviously quite important there. Um, but there also is was not, and there uh, still even today is not that big a French tradition of writing up um, case histories in the way Freud did or in the way we're more used to, I think, in um, in America. When I read, I read quite a few of the French case histories. They're often five pages, mm-hmm. and they're written in such vague terms that there's more theory than there is, you know, clinical material to my mind. So you basically have to take it for granted mm-hmm. that the clinician knows what she's talking about. And I often come away thinking, you know, well... Uh, did I? What did I learn from that? You know, is there something mm. applicable to my own practice uh, from that?
0: So uh, you do you disagree with Lacan? I mean, do you think it's very important to write up one's cases then, and and why do you do it? What is the purpose of of that for you?
1: Well, well uh, there are a, a number of purposes for me. Um, you know, uh, there are pedagogical purposes, but also. Um, for myself, despite numerous years of my own supervision with people I worked with in France, I continue to find it very useful to present a case that I'm having trouble with to a group of my colleagues at a, at a conference, usually something on the small side, not, you know, hundreds of people, but a small group, um, many of whom I know, and we've worked together for many years, and so um, uh, right, that they give me feedback, they can, you know, uh, since they're not there in the room with the patient, they can propose things that are completely different from what I was thinking, and even if I don't ultimately accept it, it forces me to think further, It, you know, um, so it gives me a different take on the case. It's a kind of group supervision uh, mm-hmm. in that sense. And so, some of the um, some cases um, I wrote up for more pedagogical purposes to, you know, train other clinicians. Um, also to illustrate certain um, concepts. So, for example, in Volume 1, there's a case of fetishism. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, writing up that case and thinking about it over the years uh, led me to think of um, fetishism as involving a logic, which I call a both-and logic, which is somewhat different from the logic that we find, say, in neurosis or psychosis. Um, and so, writing up cases uh, to me is—they may illustrate the theory, but they may also allow us to come up with something new at a theoretical mm-hmm. level. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's my hope would be at least, and um, and I think also that um, uh, for uh, for people who are learning about the the theory and the practice they don't really know what the hell it looks like, what the practice looks like, unless you give them some examples of it. And of course, they're only the examples of how I practice And every Lacanian that I know practices very differently. And they all practice quite differently from me in certain respects. So all I can do is give an example of what I do. But if you want to um, give people a sense, it's a way... uh, To write up a case, I think, is to put yourself to the test in some sense, right? Is to show, well, what is it that you really do when you practice? Because there are plenty of people who talk a good theoretical line. And then, you know, when you hear, you say, you send a patient to them, you refer someone to them, a relative, a friend, a friend of a friend, or whatever, oh and you hear about what went on exactly. <laughs> that. You go, oh my god, I can't believe it, I'll never send somebody to that person again. And so, uh, it's nice to have a sense of, um, you know, was this a was this person able to work successfully for a number of years with somebody? What seemed to be the outcome um even if if it's an ongoing case, you know, does there seem to be improvement? Um, yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, oh, so, you know you mentioned this the boot fetish uh, case, right. and um I was actually was really interesting to me because you in that there's a whole chapter. There are several chapters on that, on Alizan, correct? Or is that
1: no, that that, that was, was no one. one. Yes, right. Okay, I
0: conflated two of them. Okay, okay. <laughs> right. Yes. So, so you follow the that uh, the boot one um, in your chapter. You you all the paths of his association. You you trade. You trace all the signifiers and sort of fantasies that lead and connect um, to his being haunted by these uh, big black boots, right? Mm-hmm. And then you discuss. The Buddha is the name of the father and the object, uh, an object that performs a kind of um, a limit-setting function, uh, etc. So but I want to ask you because – okay, so this is a, more for my own personal mm-hmm. interest. So sure. in, there was this moment in the 90s, the 1990s, when I was in graduate school, I guess, but I've taught this literature in my own classes anyway, when lots of uh, – the moment was when lots of sociologists and cultural theorists, it seemed, were very interested right. in writing about fetishism. Um, sexual fetishism, commodity fetishism, um, and the question of female fetishism sexual fetishism came up repeatedly and i thought I thought it was strange uh, that some people were were very committed to discovering that they were female fetishists <laughs> or sort of arguing for for this for this possibility of female fetishism and i i guess uh you know, because I, I think it was because I, I figured out it was because some people believed in the cre- creativity of fetishism that somehow fetishists were sexually creative uh, beings. So, and um, and of course, others insisted that this was a structural impossibility if you follow Freud strictly. Um, so, so I guess. Okay. So, my question is, what do you, what do you think? I mean, is is a feminine sexual fetishist or female identified uh, fetishist? Uh, possible structurally or have you and have you seen it and you know how would you explain it
1: all right well i haven't seen it but um i wouldn't rule anything out because i think <laughs> that would be stupid i think that you know theory has got to always be open to uh revision and uh for me what was the uh, what was funniest was i think uh, it was probably you know like a week after i published my clinical introduction in 1997 mm-hmm. i received an in, ma- in the mail um uh, a, um, an advertisement for a new movie that had just come out, and I think it was called Female Perversions. Uh uh-huh. and, right, and I had just argued, you know, I had just made this whole theoretical argument in uh, chapter nine on perversions that, you know, it's, in psychoanalysis, it's considered to be, you know, structurally speaking, uh, you know, for, for men only, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Women need not apply. And, um, um, so, uh, um, uh, I don't know um you know I haven't looked into the cases where um uh a, a supposed um female fetishism but uh you know um I'm not saying that um well I guess what I would say is that our knowledge in psychoanalysis of um perversion in general and fetishism in particular is quite limited. That's that's my sense. It, much much more limited than, let's say, obsession or hysteria. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, that you know, first of all, um, uh, the vast majority of uh, fetishists don't come to see analysts, or when they do, they don't really necessarily engage in um, a long term analysis. And I've read precious few cases you know written by clinicians um uh of such cases um and um uh, yeah uh, so um the people who seem to have more experience uh, with that are um, people who work in sex offender clinics and so on, um, and uh, and again, the goals of the therapy there are not really to understand the origin of the um, of the fetish, but you know how to keep it under control. And that isn't necessarily very conducive either to uh, mm. to understanding, you know, how and why. Mm. So, um, uh, I don't think Lacan necessarily bought entirely Freud's argument of, on the origin of fetishism. Um, I don't know that he, you know, provided a full-blown theory of it himself. I'm not sure really anybody has. Um, uh, a terribly convincing theory of it but um <laughs> so you know what i'd love to see is the literature around uh female fetishism and not just as you know something you know that's creative or uh, it, One thing one, you know, we could say, let's say, from a Lacanian standpoint, is according to Lacan, you know, all sexuality, all human sexuality is fetishistic. uh, (laughs) And uh, insofar as it involves object A, um, object A is itself inherently fetishistic. You know, from the moment Lacan invents the notion of object A, um, it, 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 you know, it already comes from the time when Alcibiades basically has a fetish related to Socrates mm-hmm. um, and sees something uh, fetishistic, in a sense, uh, in Socrates, and um, which is, of course, uh, the book that I have that will be coming out next year. It's a commentary on love and on uh, Lacan's reading of Plato's Symposium in Seminar 8, where he essentially in- invents the concept of Object A. Mm-hmm. So... But that's an easy, you know, theoretical flourish to say, well, you know, in any case, all sexuality is fetishistic, so why not for women to? Um, But, you know, the specificity of a fetish, um, uh, I don't know, uh, I wouldn't be able to say.
0: Right. I mean, I think one paper in one collection called uh, Fetishism as Cultural Discourse argued that Actually, kleptomania was a form of fetishism. But anyway, it's just different. If we we had to change the concept of fetishism, oh, I guess like, right. to accommodate right. these other forms, right? So, right. But let's let's leave fetishism for. A little while. <laughs> let's move on to like good old neurosis and psychosis. This mm-hmm. is my, um, so. In the ch- in your second chapter, actually, um, on clinical in the clinical practice section, you discuss. Mm-hmm uh the different ways that you treat neurotic and psychotic patients and um mm-hmm. so you talk at length about about diagnosis according of course to Lacan's criteria of diagnosis mm-hmm. and um but I was hoping I was hoping you to have get more on the actual the technique uh around um so with psychotic patients I know you do this a little you do this in well in greater depth than in the 2007 book but right. maybe you can talk a little bit about how well first of all one detects a psychotic structure um and and look, Le- and how Lacan defines it, and then maybe say a few things about treatment of psychotics
1: right um yeah I, <laughs> I, yeah, it is a huge question, and um of course, because there are numerous forms of psychosis, and um, mm, right. uh, and you know, I think um. A certain number of clinicians at any rate are adept at identifying um, somebody who is in the middle of a psychotic break and is having obvious hallucinations and so on. And so in in certain of those cases, diagnosis is not really a problem for them to... Um, it's not a problem for them to identify who is psychotic and who isn't. However, there, is, there has been a tendency... Um, in uh, in practice and in the literature as well to sort of think, well, you know, people can become psychotic and then they go back to being something else and then they become psychotic again at mm. certain times and so there's a kind of fudging on, a kind of structural uh, difference between the two whereas for Lacan, you know, you're psychotic if you're psychotic you're you're structurally speaking psychotic your whole life uh, that doesn't mean you're in the middle of a psychotic break at every moment thank god um and um so uh i find it um uh especially difficult, even for w- with people who have you know, read everything that I've written about the distinction between neurosis and psychosis. Practitioners often uh, that I work with, that I supervise or uh, talk with, still have a difficulty um, seeing the difference between the two and I think it has something to do with the way uh people have come to practice these days, whereas Freud and, um, you know, people in the first couple of generations, I think, of analysts, of analysts were um, very attuned to slips of the tongue and double mm-hmm. entendres and plays on words. Th- that's all been given up. Um, or largely been given up um, and that really the emphasis has been on understanding. <laughs> Again, uh, when you listen to slips of the Tongue, they don't make any sense, right? If you don't listen to them and you immediately substitute in your mind what the person was probably, you think, trying to say, um, you're trying to understand them and get at the meaning that they're trying, the conscious meaning they're trying to convey, um, uh right, what they've actually said goes out the window. And most clinicians that I work with cannot tell me often, you know, in the first few times we talk about a patient they've been working with sometime for years, whether or not the patient makes slips of the tongue. <laughs> and, um, you know, one very common thing that we find in work with psychotics is they make almost none or, you know, or virtually no slips of the tongue. I've already made at least three here. I didn't comment on them because it was too embarrassing, but, uh, Oh my god, I didn't
0: even, oh, I didn't I, it. Oh my god. <laughs> what well, does this mean? Well,
1: that's okay. Sometimes I just start them and then I sort of stop them in the middle so I don't quite get all the way into them, but, uh, the, oh um, yeah. you know, most people, you know, will make, uh, slips of the tongue and most people, you know, if you work with a neurotic for any period of time, you will hear slips of the tongue if you're at all attuned to them. Uh, and that is one of our first, what you know, Lacan called them unconscious formations, but, you know, Freud referred to them as the parapraxies, and the parapraxies are all about neurosis, right? You know, these these parapraxies, you know, when you take out your key um, uh, to your office, when you come home mm-hmm. to your lover... Uh, you know, um, most people, uh most neurotics can be made to think, hmm I what that means, you know. Uh would I rather be going to my office or is coming home like going to my office or, you know, whatever, some confusion between love life and work life. Um in, psycho- in psychosis, that um, that reflection, even if such a mistake was made, it it remains at the level of a, of a mistake and can't be brought into discourse in a way which might open up a whole set of questions about, you know, what's going on for me at work, what's going on for me at home, um, mm-hmm. is there, right, some kind of weird overlap or um, problem there, Um so, uh, yeah. the yeah uh, so uh, my my sense is that clinicians are no longer attuned to the very simple indications of uh who is neurotic and who isn't because they no longer listen for the letter of what somebody says and so they don't even hear slips of the tongue uh, they don't even hear their own because one they haven't uh, they haven't been pointed out in the course of their own psychoanalysis right that they did as part of their own training and they don't do it on a regular basis with their own patients Um, so um, uh, and what that uh, the importance of all that is to know whether or not uh, the patient that you're working with has uh, let's say an unconscious that functions in the way that we're used to somebody's unconscious functioning The whole point of that being that when we make interpretations, we're trying to shake up something when we work Mm -hmm. with a neurotic at the level of the unconscious. And if there is no functioning unconscious in Mm -hmm. somebody's case, if that person is a psychotic... Then we would be foolish to try to shake up something that isn't there to be shaken up. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what we do instead, when we make an interpretation that um, plays on, that involves a play on words of two different meanings of a word that they themselves used, or two different meanings of an expression that they themselves use, they often look at us with perplexity, or they get angry simply that you know what the hell are we talking about, you know. Um, Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. what I said, you know, um, um, so um, the, uh, the, you know, a difference in technique in working with psychotics is, first of all, that we're not trying to shake up meaning, whereas with a neurotic we are. We're not trying to shake up a configuration of things in the unconscious um, with a psychotic as we are with a neurotic. and so the type of interpretations we make, I would even say that for the most part with psychotics we don't interpret. We make suggestions. We try to encourage, uh, certain things that might lead to, um, uh, a change in the way that the psychotic um, sees a particularly menacing person in their world, we might mm-hmm. try to plaster over certain things, calm certain things down. With a neurotic who's talking about a particularly unpleasant person in their life, we probably try to tease out everything about that person, right, and their experience of that person that's unpleasant for them. And mm-hmm. in, in the case of a psychotic, we once we hear some of the details we probably want to try to do anything to ensure that their encounter with that person doesn't lead to a psychotic break and help smooth things over so our position is very different whereas we avoid suggestion whenever possible with neurotics we use suggestion with psychotics uh, we avoid interpretation with um, psychotics whereas we, we use it sparingly but nevertheless hopefully uh, to good effect uh, with neurotics. Um, so that is a very quick sketch. Um, but
0: um, Yeah. I want to talk to you more about this, but mm-hmm. we, we're running out of time, and I'm just... Yeah. We haven't even... It's its good that we're having another one of these hour uh, interviews because I want to ask... A, um, anyway, lots right, of follow-up good. questions. Um, but actually, one thing... Uh, mm-hmm. I wanted to give you before we end because I, I wanted to ask you about translating Lacan, and I also wanted to ask you about body language because what I I actually uh, in I think in your chapter on um, Lacan's uh, variations on the standard treatment, you you talk about how analysts um, lately privilege the body over speech, mm-hmm. and you at, you ask this like seemingly basic question like why do we assume that the body uh, is somehow more truthful or more primary. Mm-hmm. Um so I wanted to give you the opportunity to sort of argue against the importance of body li- language but also but also ask I mean is it possible to sort of overcorrect here is is there a kind of is there a danger is there a danger of uh, fetishizing uh, speech or do you right. do you think there's no such possibility you know
1: Well, no, I think that we have to realize that they both lie. That uh, what's important is not to say that speech is more important than body language, but that we can't understand either of them automatically or transparently. And that um, I think that people, you know, even many therapists probably think, yeah, well, he's saying that, but that's not really true. Or is that really what he means? But when they see a patient cry... They think, oh, my God, you know, that's the real stuff. Mm. And that's not true. I mean, you know, I think most of us in our relations with uh, lovers, children, parents, um, we know that uh, sometimes we cry uh, not simply because we're hurt or we're sad, but that, you know, it's overdetermined and it can be. Uh, a way of getting somebody sympathy, if not an outright ploy in a conversation to get somebody to stop yelling at us or to change discourses to, uh, you know, uh, that somebody who's being belligerent with us and going on and on about the same thing that they're saying we did wrong, that after a while we just can't, no matter how much we try to justify ourselves, um, um, nothing seems to appease them. Well, you break down and cry and sometimes it stops, you know, it Mm. it stops the other person. So, uh, all I would say is that uh, whereas people tend to say, oh, yeah, uh, you know, uh, the patient's stomach grumbled and therefore that meant X, Y, <laughs> you know, X, exactly. And I said, well, how do you know it meant X? Maybe it meant Y. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, why don't you ask the patient what uh, what she thinks it meant <laughs> and X? Um, uh, so I guess what I would say is not that speech it doesn't speak the truth. Uh, speech lies just as easily um, mm. as anything else, but why should we think that body language is a dead giveaway?
0: Right, right. <laughs> yeah, that it contains something more fundamental somehow to the person. Right. Um, so uh, so before we conclude for mm-hmm. this time, I, I I did want to ask you about uh translating lacan there's there's a whole section in the book devoted uh to translation and their interviews mm-hmm. so this will be a kind of uh maybe meta meta commentary on those mm-hmm. interviews and um mm-hmm. okay so sure. i guess you're uh, this is what i want. you're asked by an interviewer in the book uh, it's something like you know given your demands of clarity from uh, you know for yourself and mm-hmm. your students like how do you deal with Lacan's impenetrability, basically, or his his uh, what did one of the interviewers say? Something about how he makes vagueness into a, a form of art, or, uh-huh. or so. Uh-huh. Um, uh, and and you were very modest, and you say that you know you do what you can to make Lacan as clear as possible, and try to understand him, and not assume he's just just gibberish. He's when you don't uh-huh. understand something, it's, it's it's written some gibberish. So anyway, you also talk about uh, how important uh, it is, though, to convey for you to convey the jouissance of Lacan's text, and. Uh-huh. Um so I guess uh, how do you negotiate that? I mean is do you have to sacrifice clarity for the sake of polyvalence or is it I mean can you have both or what do you, what do you struggle with there? Uh, right um I
1: guess it it depends somewhat on the text uh, that I'm translating because some of them are more fun than others. Lacan is having more fun in some of them than in others. Um, you know, in many cases, what I strive to do is to um, render something in such a way that I think it has the same power in English as it has in French even if there are one or two other possible uh, resonances in what he's saying that aren't conveyed thereby. And that's when I'll um, indulge in footnotes to try to explain to readers who want to go a bit further and who maybe know some French what other possible resonances might be there and that I'm leaving out. Um, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I I find... uh, that, um, the better I know French, and, you know, I'm still working at it. It's been 30 some years, but uh, I'm getting better. And, uh, Go on. Uh, no, no, yeah, you, you, no, no, no. Uh, yeah, I spend a lot of the year in France now, and, uh, every year my French gets better, and every year I understand things that I didn't understand before. And I find that he's not as vague as, uh, as I sometimes think. And it's also that, I see. Yeah. it's difficult uh, you know the context is extremely important, and things that for us are very vague are not so were not so vague perhaps for people who attended the classes that he was giving uh, you know the seminars in particular. Mm-hmm. cultural references at the time, historical references, uh, you know, current events and so on. People knew what he was talking about, and we don't. And a lot of the people he was talking to were reading the same journals, the same psychoanalytic journals, and so they knew when an article by Blint came out, and they had all read it, too, in the International Journal and so on. So I never read that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I have to go back and read it, and then sometimes things start... So a lot of things come into focus very slowly, um, and um, the more I've translated Lacan, the more um, I've found that, you know, it isn't nearly as vague as it sometimes seemed, you know, on the first ten readings. And, um, and, also, there are just
0: many references that I have no clue how to even begin, and thanks to your footnotes, right. though, I do, but, you know, before the, without the footnotes, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And, there, and there are still plenty of
1: others that, you know, that I've no doubt missed and that other people you know especially people who were um, working around Lacan were were well aware of and that I'll never be aware of so um, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah in terms of compromises I think you always have to make uh, certain compromises obviously because of play on words which seems more or less deliberate in the text Um you know, you can't render basically plays on words in another language unless you get really lucky. And so you have to, you have to create something and, um, uh, uh, you know, you, uh, imagine. And um, um, uh, I'll just take an example from the book, right? I used as an interpretation once with a patient the, the phrase, you don't know shit. Right. And so this was a patient who was, um, always afraid that somehow he didn't know his stuff when he got up to teach or he didn't know what he was saying when he was writing and who also had all kinds of problems about, uh, you know, uh, going to the bathroom mm. and, um, you know, I, I, when I was looking at that today before our interview, <laughs> I was thinking, how would I translate that into French? <laughs> and, and there ain't no way. <laughs> Just wow. uh, it is impossible. So uh, you, you know, you you try to come up with something that might. Um, uh um, at least convey one of the meanings, and then, you know, all you can do is drop a footnote and, and say what the other one is, or the other ones would potentially are. And, um, mm-hmm. um, but, it, you know, it's a series of compromises, of course.
0: It's uh, a creative translation. is a very creative process. People don't always see it that way, I guess.
1: Uh, yeah, I think it is a very creative process, and um, I find that, for example, in the um, the the latest translation that I've done of Seminar Eight, you now that'll be out next year with Polity Press. Um, you know, I gave myself more liberty than I did in the Acre. The Acre was so damn difficult, and my French still wasn't as good as it is wow. now. And I think it's easier for me now to find you know different ways of saying it and to get out of the French. Grammar and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, mm-hmm. a- anyway, you'll let me know what you think. <laughs> <if
0: you're laughs> <next to laughs> um, right, uh, I can't yeah. wait. Um, yeah. Well, listen, uh, Bruce, we've taken up enough of your time. Um, I'm hope. I'm hoping we'll talk again. Uh, maybe we'll be back about in about a month to discuss Volume 2.
1: That would be great. But it's been a pleasure for me.
0: Oh, thank you so much again for doing this, and uh, thanks to our audience uh, for listening.
1: Yeah, next thanks, time. To everyone. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you.